If you have your Bibles this morning, I'd <clears throat> like to invite you to turn to the book of Proverbs again. And um, that's where we have been coming through the Scriptures. And uh, we have been uh, laying out, uh, in particular, Proverbs chapter 10. Uh, as you're turning there <clears throat> and opening it up, I want to I thank all of you for <clears throat> the prayers. You know, last week that we were holding a revival up in Monmouth, Illinois, uh, a little church up there. And uh, you're, uh, I tell you what, it was one of the most incredible times that, uh, um, that I've seen in a long time. A little church there in a city, a little town uh, that runs about 200, 225 in the little city. And just a little country town out there with a little church in it. And they normally run about uh, 40 people on a good day. And we probably had 100 people every night come out. And it just really, really had a great service. And took the guys up, you know, the music group up with me. And they just really, really ministered to the people. Made my job preaching a lot <clears throat> easier. But the, it was just a great time. We had just a ton of decisions up there and the last Sunday morning. And then... Um, it's going to be a great time. So I thank you for your prayers for that, and uh, uh, we'll look to see what God is, is, continues to do up there. But uh, today we're going to be back in Proverbs chapter 10, and we're going to continue to move down through this chapter. I know I was out last week being Mammoth, and then I was sick the week before that, so I've been two Sundays out. But uh, if you will remember, we have been moving down through Proverbs chapter 10, and uh, we have been uh, listening again and laying out more uh, great principles of, of the Word of God. And we've learned now from Proverbs in our study that principles in the Bible are really the building blocks of the Christian life. It's what you build uh, on the foundation uh, of your life, the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what really makes a Christian a strong Christian. You can always tell a Christian uh, in their strength by what they, what they b- <clears throat> believe about the Word of God uh, in the Bible. Not about their own personal opinion, but what they can go to in the Scriptures. And that's the key. And you've got a lot of people that have a lot of opinions about a lot of things in life, a lot of things in the world, and a lot of things in general about God. But when you pin them down in the Bible, that's the key. And uh, if you have noticed now, I've been trying to <clears throat> set a pattern. Sometimes my patterns are obvious. Sometimes my patterns are not so obvious. But if you have noted that we have been, uh, what we've been doing in Proverbs in our study is what uh, we should be doing really through the whole Bible. And uh, we're not just reading Proverbs and making some basic observations or laying out some general truth. But what we're doing is what the Bible calls in John chapter 5, verse 39, is that we are searching the Scriptures. And that's a key concept to understand when it comes to the Bible. Uh, Searching out each verse and examining every key word and phrase and setting a context and, and, most important, defining key words in the Bible. Everything I do in the Bible, I try to give you a representation of something in the Bible that we ought to be doing or you ought to be doing uh, to, to learn the Bible. And, uh, you know, and, the, the, and, the, and then taking the material and building the material into a workable format of Bible truth uh, to live our lives by. And that's really what we have been doing as we have been coming through the Scriptures. And that's really what you do with the Bible. Bible says in 2 Timothy 2.15 that you study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman, but you do that by searching out the Scriptures. When I was taught the Bible, I was pretty fortunate. I was taught the Bible, and when I was taught how to lay out the Bible, a heavy emphasis was put on being exact with the Bible, that there was no room for error as far as what you knew and what you said about the Bible. And I, have that, I had that drilled into me uh, in everything. And I try to pass that off and on to you and all we do with the Bible. Now, I realize that in the day and age that we live in, <clears throat> most people don't want that level of the Bible. You hear it all the time. I hear it all the time. You, have to, you deal with it all the time where people, uh, they like the Bible, uh, but they don't want to get into a committed level of the Scriptures where you really got to understand what the Word of God says. You know, I, I, I can't go there in my own, in my own understanding of the Scriptures. Uh, when I got taught the Bible, I, you know, I got the, I got the whole concept, and it's, to me it's everything. Uh, when I laid out my Bible verse by verse, because as I was a young Christian growing up, I knew, that, I knew what the book was, and I knew I was going to have to learn it. 
And I knew that I couldn't just have a passing uh, relationship with it. I was going to have to uh, commit myself to it because fundamentally understood what it was. It was everything that I needed in the issues of life. So I realized that, that I, had to, I had to search those scriptures and, and lay it out uh, verse by verse and put that book together. It took me 15 years to do that. And I'm talking 15 years of three or four hours a day. But it was times on the weekend that I would, when I'd have some, a lot of free time, that I'd go six, seven, eight hours a day with it. But I understood and realized that uh, you had to be diligent with the Scriptures. And if you're going to be exact with the Bible, then you have to do that. Then I understood and began to realize how important church history was uh, connected to the Bible. So I probably spent another 10 years uh, going through every aspect of that and dialing it all back and tying it in too. In other words, what I'm saying is I was drilled into my mind as a young man to be exact with the Scriptures. I don't know any other way to do it. I don't want to know any other way to do it because I believe that that's so important. So as we go through the book of Proverbs, not only do you want to see the practical applications of the issues of life, but we also want to focus on the exactness of the Scriptures, how to search them out how to get and squeeze every drop out of everything in the Bible. You'll notice that one of the things I do all the time, if I just took a class and did it, we'd never get anything else done. So I made up my mind that in every Bible study we have and every Sunday morning we have and even the one-on-one time we have together, I always take the time when when we run across it uh, to give you a defining verse in the Bible. I think that everything that we believe, every concept, every doctrine that we have has to have a defining verse behind it. And, uh, you know, and it's so important to understand that so that you can fall back on the Scriptures. So as we walk through the Scriptures together, that's what I try to do. I try to make note of those defining passages and show you uh, the exactness of it all and how important that it is. Now, today we're going to be in Proverbs chapter 10, and we're going to simply look at two small verses here, but there's plenty in these two verses to keep us busy. Uh, It'll be chapter 10, verses 8 and 9, and here's what he says. The wise man in heart will receive commandments, but a pratting fool shall fall. He that walketh uprightly walketh surely, but he that perverteth his ways shall be known. Father, we thank you and praise you for the Lord Jesus, and we do love you today. We thank you, Father, for uh, the truth that you've given us and the Word of God that you provided for us. Thank you, Father, for the good people in this church and for our attitude toward the Word of God that we believe it is the true Word of God, and we approach it that way. Help us, Lord, to always be exact with the Scriptures, to, uh, Lord, not get caught up in the fallacy of what somebody thinks or what somebody believes but let our source bedrock for everything that we do and teach be the absolute perfect Word of God. And we'll thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. For a sake we ask it. Amen. Now, these two verses are, uh, are two probably of the, one of the two of the greatest practical verses in the whole chapter here. And uh, you remember now that we've talked about this all the way through, that how the book of Proverbs is uh, about the issues of life. <clears throat> Verse 8 says, the wise in heart will receive commandments, but a prating fool shall fall. The wise in heart shall receive commandments. Most Christians today think that the commandments, when you read them in the Bible, are always talking about the Ten Commandments that were given to man in the Old Testament through Moses. That's not true. I mean, it's true that Moses got the Ten Commandments, and those Ten Commandments formed the basis for the law that the nation of Israel followed. But in the New Testament church, they were also given some commandments. And those commandments are just as vital as the ones that were given to the nation of Israel. <clears throat> You'll remember in 1 Corinthians chapter 14 that Paul's dealing with the church of Corinth and how that they're really messed up on spiritual gifts. They're really, really all whacked out on, on tongues and healing and all of the things that uh, the charismatic movement gets messed up on today. And Paul systematically goes down through that chapter and deals with every aspect and gives a biblical exact definition of every one of those concepts as he's laying them out. And when he gets down to the last part of that chapter in chapter 14 and verse 37, he says to them, the things that I just gave you, the things that I just laid out to you, 
I command you, he says, command and teach. There were some commandments about those things that he gave them. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 2, it talks about, for you know what commandments we gave you by uh, the Lord Jesus. There were some commandments that God gave them. Uh, 1 John chapter 2, verses 7 and 8, talks about the old commandment and the new commandment that were given by Christ. 1 John chapter 5, verse 2 says that we know that uh, we were God's children by the way we keep His commandments. And he's talking to New Testament Christians. So there's commandments for the Old Testament, but there's also commandments for the New Testament. Uh, when you search the Scriptures, instead of just reading them, you find out what they are. You'll find out what the old ones were to the nation of Israel, and then you'll find out what the new ones are that are given to the church. And it says in verse 8, the wise in heart will receive commandments. Notice it says wise in heart. Notice it's the heart, not the head. You're going to find in dealing with people, you have people that have a head knowledge and they have a heart knowledge. Heart knowledge is always where God starts in your relationship with you. Head knowledge will always take you away from God. Heart knowledge will always bring you to God. It's just that simple. And when you have a head knowledge about God, it's what you think about God. But what determines your thinking about God the right way is your heart knowledge toward God, and that is what you feel about God as far as loving Him and understanding what He's done for you. The two go hand in hand. But a head knowledge without the right heart knowledge will lead you into all kinds of trouble. And, uh, you know, the wisdom of God starts in a man's heart, uh, not the head. It starts with loving God with all of your heart, with all your mind, and all of your soul. That's where it begins. And it's part of defining the right attitude of heart that we have. It's more than just being right with God. It's, it's getting the things with God exactly in your life. You know, the key to learning the Bible, and I, I've told people all this all my life. I remember years ago, I had a young man, and he reminded you, some of you young men remind me of him, and he was a good kid, and he turned out to be a really good kid. And he came to me one time when he had just started coming to church, and he was, you know, in awe of the Bible and wanted to learn the Bible, and, you know, he, he, he really had a desire to learn it. And, and he was very sincere in his question. He came to me and he says, Bobby says, I just, he says, I'm not asking for any fast track or anything, but I am asking for a key, some keys here. He says, what do I have to do to really learn the Bible? And he says, he says, I guess, you, you know, you've you got to really study it, don't you? And I said, well, studying the Bible is very important. But I said, I got to tell you, I said, the studying the Bible is not the key to learning the Bible. And he said, well, yeah, he says, I guess you really just got to, you know, do what you talk about all the time and, you know, divide the Bible up, rightly divide the word of truth, and you build that. He heard me talk about that framework of the Bible, you know, and he says, I guess that's where I start. And I said, you know what, that's all good, and those are things you have to do, but that in itself, again, is not the key to learning the Bible. And he says, well, what is the key to learning the Bible? If the key to learning the Bible isn't studying it and laboring in it and, and, and dividing it up the way the Bible says, what is the key? And I told him, I said, you know what? The key to learning the Bible is not studying it. The key to learning the Bible is loving it. And when you love it with all of your heart and all of your mind and all of your soul, you're going to learn it. Now, some of you here, and I, I know many of you are young Christians, and I don't put you in this category, but across Christianity today, so don't take this like I'm talking about you, in a broad sense, you'll find a lot of Christians that have been Christians for a long time that uh, don't know that, in fact, some of you young Christians know more about the Bible than they do. You know why that is? It's not because you're smarter than them. It's not because you necessarily spend more time in the Bible than them. The fundamental difference is the fact that you love it and they don't. I didn't say they didn't respect it. I didn't say they don't think it's the Word of God. They don't have that love in their heart for the book that they love it with all of their heart, with all of their mind, and all of their soul. And that's what it takes. You know, the greatest example of this is the Old Testament tabernacle that is found in between Exodus chapter 25 and Exodus chapter 28. And, and the Old Testament tabernacle is, without a doubt, one of the most incredibly detailed um, things that were ever put in the Bible. And the reason why there's so much detail to it 
And the greatest book I ever read on it was Arthur W. Pink's his, his Gleanings in Exodus, but uh, and, and, and Clarence Larkin's Dispensational Truth. But even they couldn't unearth it all. And the reason why there's so much material about it and, and so much exactness about it, I mean, he talks about the, 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 the knobs that are, that are cut into little uh, flowers, and he talks about every little dimension of it, and he talks about every little aspect of it. And the reason why he's so exact with that is because that tabernacle represents so many things. Well, that, you take one of the things that you could spend the rest of your life and never unearth all of that the tabernacle deals with, it would be that subject in itself. And uh, the tabernacle is a picture of the universe. The tabernacle is a picture of Israel's central theme of worship. It's so many different aspects. But one of the aspects of the Old Testament tabernacle is a picture of you and me right now. The outside of it was badger skins. It's a lot like you and me being human on the outside. But what was God about the tabernacle wasn't the skins on the outside. It's what the things that were on the inside. And it's just like you and me. The thing about you and me that makes us godly is not what is on the outside, our flesh, the thing that makes us special and makes us holy to God and have a relationship with God is what you have on the inside, like the tabernacle. And you'll find that there's three sections to that tabernacle. And you'll find that in your life and my life, there's three parts to you, a body, soul, and spirit. And they all match up. And you really want to understand the aspect of really taking the Word of God and being exact with it and understand the aspect of when it says the wise in heart will receive commandments. You want to search out the scriptures on that concept and find out how to do it. And I know that I could have just blown by that. I could have said the wise in heart will receive commandments, made a few little flower remarks and moved on. But there's more to it than that. If you're exact. And you'll find that that tabernacle has an outer court where in that outer court you'll find in, uh, it, you have the brazen altar in Exodus chapter 27. It also talks about in Exodus chapter 30 in that outer court the laven of water. And then you went into the inner court. That'll be a picture of your body. Then you went into the inner court. That's where your spirit is. That's inside you. And you'll find there that over on this side in Exodus chapter 25, there was a table of, of what they call shewbread. Over on this side, there was what the Bible calls in Exodus chapter 25 and 27, the seven-pronged golden candlestick. And then up a little bit farther, right before you got to the veil, you'll find the altar of incense. And then you find that in Exodus chapter 30. All those things are pictures of what's on the inside of you after what happened on the outside of you when you trusted Christ as your own personal Savior. You'll find that the priest went into that tabernacle to do the work. You'll find that it had everything around it, but that tabernacle had no floor in it. It had no floor in it. It was just dirt floor. But when that priest went in and he came back out, and he went in there to minister, it's a picture of where you and I really do the ministry. You know why and I really do the ministry? We do the ministry with the three things that are listed inside that inner, that inner, in that inner tabernacle. You have the shoe bread. That's a type of the Word of God. We minister the Word of God to people. When that show bread had to be baked fresh every morning. They couldn't just do what we do when we go to high, when Gary goes to high V and they got leftover bread and they give it to us. It had to be fresh every morning. And it was laid out in, 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 in cakes of, 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 of 12. And the way it was laid out is instructive. Here's the table. You had one, two, three, four, five, six, and then you had six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve. Laid out six and six. Six and six, twelve, because in the Old Testament, it represented each one of the tribes of the nation of Israel. But that showbread is a picture of the Bible in your life and my life that's inside you. So it's laid out six and six, because when God gave you your showbread, the Word of God, there's 66 books in it. Notice it's showbread. Showbread in the Old English, showbread. You show people the bread that God gave you. Amen. It's on the inside. 
And then on this side over here, you had a seven-pronged candlestick. That's the Holy Spirit of God. The only light that was in that tabernacle was the light from that seven-pronged candlestick. That's a picture of your heart. That's a picture of the inside of you and me today. The only light that really is any real light inside of you is the light that comes from the Holy Spirit of God inside you. And then you had the, they had the, 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 the incense altar. That's a picture of your prayer life. Those three things in there is a picture of what your attitude of heart with God in ministry really is. It's a picture of the three central things that you got to have working together to really minister. One, you got to have the Word of God. Two, you got to have the Holy Spirit of God. And three, you got to have your prayer life where it needs to be. Now, that priest, when he went in that second compartment from the first compartment, that's where he ministered. And when you look at it, he had to do the work inside that, in that second area there, which is a picture of the work that you're doing inside you when you minister for God. And you find out that the golden candlesticks was over on this side, and the bread was over on this side. And the priest, when he went in there to work, he, could, he had to do his work behind the candlestick or behind the bread. He could never get in front of it because once he got in front of it, he blocked the light and he couldn't see what he was doing. And when you and I do real ministry, we got to get behind the Lord, not in front of the Lord. You got to let the Holy Spirit of God be in front of you. You're not being in front of him. And so they ministered that way. He goes in there and he goes back out to the brazen altar, which is a picture of Jesus Christ dying for you on the cross. That's where the sacrificial lamb was slain. And there's a laver of water there. Remember I told you? It didn't have a floor in it. It didn't have a floor in it. And he had to stay clean. So every time he came out, before he went back in, he had to walk over to that laver of water that had little spigots on it, and he washed his feet. He washed his feet because... That old tabernacle had a dirt floor, and in his walk in the side of that thing, he got his feet dirty. So every time he went in to minister, he had to wash his feet before he went back in to do the service of God. You know what that's a picture of? That's a picture of you and I ministering in this world, but we'll pick up some dirt on our feet, our walk with God. So you know what you do? You have to wash your feet and wash your walk every time you go in to minister. Now, that's exactness with the scriptures. You have the body, that is the outside where the brazen altar was and where Christ was crucified and the labor in the water where you keep yourself clean. And then you have that inner section, the second section, which is a picture of your spirit where you really minister, your attitude of heart where you really minister. Then you have the third section. The third section is the Holy of Holies. That's your soul. And if you know anything about the Old Testament, you know that that third section, the Holy of Holies, was sealed off from the other two. And if you know anything about the Bible, you know the day you got saved, your soul got sealed on the day of redemption, and that Ark of the Covenant that was behind that veil, sealed off from the other two, is a picture of Christ in you, the hope of the glory, and he's sealed in you today. Now that's what you got. That's what you got. You see, that thing is such an incredible picture. And when we want to get exact with the Scriptures, when we want to really get exact with the Bible, we don't want to talk about flowery things. We don't want to make general observations. We want to be exact. We want to search the Scriptures. And when the Bible talks about the fact that the wise in heart will receive commandments, it's talking about your heart knowledge. It's based on your attitude of heart that goes back with those pieces of... And over there in the Bible in Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 and 17. It talks about the fact that, uh, that uh, these things are the furnishings that we have inside us. It says that the man of God thoroughly furnished. Now, all your new Bibles, every one of them, 
Could I get a lot of flack because I point out differences in the Bibles? I'll take the flack anytime, anyplace, anywhere, because I'm going to give you a good example of it, why I do it. And you should thank me for it. Go ahead. Right now, I'll wait. That Bible says that a man is truly furnished unto all good works by the Word of God. You know what every new Bible on the market says? It says, it says, it says finished. And it takes out the word truly. You see, the word truly means from the inside out. And the furnishings are the furnishings that are in that tabernacle that represent. And when you change those words, you destroy the greatest picture in the Bible of your light in your relationship with God in your attitude of heart. Now, that's why I'm exact with the Scriptures. I'm exact with the Scriptures. And I make no apology for it. I'm exact with what the Bible says. I'm not going to lose those things. Now, you may choose to lose them on your own. That's your deal. You won't lose them because I didn't tell you about them. That's my deal. Now, I'll tell you something else. You got the seven golden candlesticks, picture of the Holy Spirit of God. You got the brazen altar where the fire is burning to do the sacrifice. And then you got the altar of incense. It's a picture of your prayer life. And when they, when they had to light those fires on the altar of incense and the candlestick, they had to go to the brazen altar to get the fire off that brazen altar to light those candles and to keep that incense burning. You know why? I'll tell you why. You'll be over there in Leviticus chapter 10 that God killed some sons of Aaron because they used strange fire. Now here it comes, folks. Here it comes. You want exact? You want to understand your relationship with God in an exact way? You want to search the scriptures? Okay, here it is. That fire that lit the Holy Spirit of God and that fire that lit that prayer like altar of incense had to come off the fire from the brazen altar. When Aaron's boys brought it from someplace else that was strange fire, God killed them. You know why? Because it's a picture of you coming to do God's service, coming to do God's work, and the fire that you have in you doesn't go back to what Jesus Christ did for you on the Calvary's cross, that brazen altar. I want to tell you something. Like it or not, I'm going to tell you something. You want exact? Here's exact. You can serve God all you want. You can do everything you want. You can win 100 million souls to Christ. You can do everything you want to do in any church, any place, and think you're doing a great job. But I'm going to tell you something. If the motivation of what you're doing doesn't go back to the cross of Calvary and your fire start with that brazen altar's fire, you're wasting your time. You're wasting your time. You see, when the Bible talks about the fact that the wise in heart will receive commandments, and it's talking about a heart knowledge instead of a head knowledge, I just gave you the biblical definition of what attitude of heart, where it comes from. Showed you that tabernacle, body, soul, and spirit. And in the Bible, it will always be about man's heart. Proverbs 3, verse 1 says, Let thine heart keep thy commandments. Proverbs 3, verse 5 says, Trust in the Lord with all thine heart. Proverbs 4, 4 says, Let thine heart retain my words. Proverbs 15, 28 says, The heart of the righteous study it to answer. Proverbs 16, 1 says, The preparation of the heart in man and the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. In other words, you do the right thing with your heart in the book and God will give you the word out of your mouth that you need to say. It's just that simple. Proverbs 16, 23 says, The heart of the wise teaches his mouth and addeth learning to his lips. Brother, if you have anything going good with God, I won't tell you something. It starts in your heart, not in your head. And it starts with everything in your heart going back to the day that he died on Calvary's cross on that brazen altar, and he paid your price. And the Bible says in Romans chapter 10, verse 9 and 10, With the heart man believeth unto righteousness. Now look at the last part of verse 8. But a prating fool shall fall. See? Now let's get exact about this for a minute here. The word prating simply means you talk a lot and never say anything. 
no wisdom to it, no meat to it. A good example of this is found in Job chapter 38, verse 2, where God asked the question, and when he says, who is this that darkeneth counsel by words without knowledge? See, somebody's saying something, but not really saying anything. It talks about in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 18, that people get out there and they, they seduce people. People get caught up in what they say with great swelling words. Now, that's somebody who's talking but not saying anything of, this, of any substance or any value. Now, this is modern-day science. This is modern-day philosophy. This is modern-day preachers and modern-day religions. We hear a lot of fancy words that don't mean anything. I hear people all the time get up and talk about sharing spiritual values. We're going to reconstruct some family values. We're all going to be taught about a, our sexual orientation. We all want to be intolerant of alternative lifestyles. We need to be effective channels. We need to be the challenge of status searching. We need to learn to live with ourselves. Oh, God, what a thought. I heard a guy on the radio today talking about what we need is friend therapy. That's the world. The biggest example of his politics. They say all kinds of stuff and mean nothing. You can keep your doctor if you want. How did it work for you? Scientific double talk. Circular reasoning. Flowing rhetoric. God is love. The spark of God in every man. God's everybody's father. And just keep talking when there's nothing left to say. The world's full of it. <laughs> in more ways than one, if you understand my point. Now the Bible says he'll fall. A prating fool shall fall. And he falls because it's the word of God that holds us up. It's the word of God that keeps you and me from falling. And a fool doesn't have that. He has nothing to hold on to. Psalms 119 verse 117 says, Hold thou me up and I shall be safe. And I will have respect unto thy statues continually. See, it's the word of God. In death he holds me up. Psalms 139 verses 1 through 10. O Lord, thou hast searched me and known me. Thou understand my down-sitting and mine uprising. Thou understandest my thought afar off. Thou compassest my path and my lying down and art acquainted with all my ways. For there is not a word in my tongue, but, O, o Lord, Thou knowest it altogether. Better hast beset me behind and before and laid Thine hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain unto it. Whether shall I go from Thy spirit? or Whether shall I flee from Thy presence? If I ascend up into heaven, thou art there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, thou art there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there shall thy right hand lead me. Here it comes, and thy right hand shall hold me. See? Holds you up. It's true in death. It's true in life. I'm told uh, in 1 Thessalonians 5.21 to prove all things and then to what? Hold fast to that which is good. When you go to worlds of fun... You ride that 6,000-foot roller coaster they got out there, the Mamba or the whatever it's called, the Zambingi Zingers or whatever it is. I've been on that sucker a couple of times, end of my story, man. I don't need to be on it anymore. Everybody wants to have the world's highest roller coaster. I give you a little advice. You ride that sucker, it seems real nice out of the gate when you're click, 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 click going up that hill. But, boy, you get to the top, man, you look down, and, boy, you got about a, you got about a 4G drop as you move into that thing. And right in front of you, my advice to you, there's a steel bar. You hang on to that bar. 
When you start going down, it helps if you push down on it because then you're pushing the blood back up inside you and you push on it. And then when you start zinging back and forth, throwing it left and right, then you hang on to it. And it, it you know, I, some of you idiots have to put your hands up when you go down there. You're out of your mind. You're a crazy fool. Not me, boy. I'm hanging on to that bar for dear life. And I'm telling you. And, I, and I'm telling you, and I want to tell you something else. In life, life is an absolute roller coaster. I mean, it's going to drop you to the bottom as your stomach's going to fall out. It's going to take you up, and you're going to be serenely thinking, wow, what a nice view. And then the whole bottom is going to drop out, and you're going to go down and plunge down to that thing just like life. And then it's going to knock you left. It's going to knock you right. And the bottom line is this. In life, just like a roller coaster, you need something to hold on to. Unsaved man doesn't have that. And I say, man, this world has absolutely nothing to hold on to, so what? He falls. He falls. Look at verse 9. He that walketh uprightly walketh surely, but he that perverteth his ways shall be known. Now, this is the great principle. He that walketh uprightly walketh surely. See? It doesn't say walk with surely. It says walk surely. Now, again, this is what we, we, we have as Christians that an unsaved man can never have. And that is simply to be sure of things in this life. Now, I don't know if you can appreciate that. I think most of God's people probably in the sickening Christianity we live in today never even think about this. They're too busy wanting to get all they can get and want what they want and doing all they want to do, but they don't even think about the fact that, that the things that you and I have that the world doesn't have that we're absolutely sure of. I mean, you know how much the world would pay for that if you could sell it? You know that's why these preachers get on the TV and get these crowds of 35,000 people and lie through their teeth to them about if you got this disease and you got that, you just hang on and you keep in there and God will make it okay. And if you got this addiction, don't give up and God will just take it away someday. They make millions and millions and millions of dollars off of selling hope to people when it's a false hope. And the truth of the whole matter is, the bottom line is right in front of them in a Bible, but they're blinded to it. <clears throat> now, I'm going to take just a second here, and I'm going to, you're all Christians, I suspect, probably this morning. Now, let me be exact with you, and I want to show you eight things, eight things that if you're saved this morning, you can be absolutely sure of. And you wet these down, brother. This will make another great study like the one we got, the seven things to change the day you got saved. This is a great one. This could be discipleship three or four. Incredible study. The eight things that God gave you the day you got saved that you are absolutely can be sure of that the world cannot be sure of. Now, the first thing I have here uh, that the world doesn't have that I'm sure of is found in Isaiah chapter 28, verse 16. And it says in Isaiah chapter 28, verse 16, Therefore thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I lay in Zion a foundation, a stone, a tried stone, a precious stone, a precious cornerstone. Here it comes. A sure foundation. He that believeth shall not make haste. You know the first thing you got when you got saved? You got a sure foundation. You got a foundation that is sure that the rest of your life you now can build on because you have a sure foundation. And it isn't money, it isn't riches, it isn't possessions, it isn't all the things that the world thinks are it wants to build on. It's the foundation that you laid, 1 Corinthians chapter 3 says, that no other man can lay which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. And the day you got saved, you laid a sure foundation in your life, and you ought to be building on that today if you're saved. When I look at you, I don't look at you as people. I mean, I do, but I don't look at you as, like most pastors look at their people. I know the Bible says that when you got saved, God laid a foundation in your life, and I know you're God's temple. And I know that you have to build that temple. God gave him a temple back there in the Old Testament. You know what? And when after the after the uh, uh, the captivity, when they go back in Ezra and Nehemiah, oh, everybody was excited to build the temple, and they start building the temple. But after fourteen years, they quit building it. They got complacent. They started taking the things that God gave them to build God's temple and start building their own homes. 
And that's when God gave him the prophet Haggai. And Haggai is one of the minor prophets in your Bible. And he comes on the scene and he cleans their clock about why you have stopped building God's temple when God gave you a mandate to build that temple. When I look across this room or I look at Christians all across, wherever I see them, I don't see them just as people. I see them as building programs. I see them as people that if you're truly saved, you laid a foundation in your life with a mandate to build. And all of you here that are truly saved are nothing more than a building program in various stages of completion. Some of you just got saved. You just laid the foundation. Some of you got the walls up. Some of you are framing in the windows. Some of you got the roof on and you're putting up the fixtures in there and you're moving right along. And some of you started to put the blocks on the foundation. You got halfway up and then you quit. That's all it works. Now, excuse me, but that's exact. That's exact. You know the story in Matthew chapter 7, verse 24. One man built his house upon a rock. The other man built his house upon the sand. And when the winds came and the storms came and the wind howled and the great floods came, the one who built his house on the sand got destroyed and the one that built his house on the rock persevered. And you know what? When you build your body and your life on the rock of God, a sure foundation, I don't care what this world throws at you. You'll make it through. You'll make it through. You'll make it through. Second thing. Then because I got, can I keep this watch? I really like this watch. I forgot my watch today. My dear brother gave me this watch. This is better than the one I got. I'll give you mine for this one. I'll throw in an army helmet too. Okay. Second thing. Then because of my sure foundation in Christ Jesus, I have what Isaiah 55 verse 3 says. Let me read it for you. Incline your ear and come unto me. Hear and your soul shall live. And I will make an everlasting covenant with you, even the sure mercies of David. Now, you know what that is? The sure mercies of David in the Old Testament is a picture of your, your eternal security in the New Testament. David committed two great sins, adultery and murder, which under the law, there was no sacrifice that he could bring. The only thing that could happen was David had to die for not one, but for both of them, but he would have died if he had just done one or the other. That's all there is. There's no sacrifice for it. God came down because of David's relationship with him in that book. God came down and created a dispensation in the Old Testament of a New Testament dispensation and gave him the sure mercies that David would not die. You know what that's a picture of? That's a picture of the day you got saved. You and I deserve to be in hell this morning if you ain't figured that out yet. You and I deserve to be screaming our lungs out in a lake of fire. All the things that we did before we got saved, all the things that we got part of and all the things that we did toward God and against God and all those things, God had every right, a holy God had every right to put me in hell and to put in you hell, but you know what he did? He's not only saved me, but then he gave me the sure mercies of God. He gave me my salvation, my eternal security, that God would never take what he gave me back. I got a sure foundation, and I got the sure mercies of David. Oh, man. I got it. Charismatic could never get that in 10 million years because he didn't have a Bible. He just twitches a lot. (laughs) For you and for me as a sinner, there was nothing we could do. No works could cut it. Nothing, our good life couldn't do it. All the money we'd give, we could go to church till the cows come home. We were sentenced to a fiery, eternal damnation in hell. But the one who made a sure foundation also made a sure mercy. We got it today if you're saved. Now the third one. Then because of my relationship with Christ and all that God has given me, I can have and be sure of my home and my children. Look at Isaiah 32, verses 17 through 18. And the work of righteousness shall be peace. 
and the effect of righteousness, quietness, and assurance forever. And my people shall dwell in a peaceable habitation and in a sure and ensure dwellings and in quiet resting places. You see, once you get the sure foundation, once you get these things in your understand about the sure uh, mercies of David, you know the next thing God gives you? He gives your family a sure dwelling. The absolute guarantee that your home will stay the course of this old world. I'm telling you. I'm telling you. Keeping the heritage of God alive from one generation to the next. And you know what the key is? The key is in verse 17. The work of righteousness. Families ministering together. Kids seeing mom and dad. Dad sitting down at the table, opening up the Bible, leading the way, showing an example for his children and for his wife and for his kids. And everybody following the lead and families ministering together and doing the work of righteousness. People say this all the time to me, and I I understand it. They say, you know, I don't know if I'd bring children into the world today. As bad as it is and as terrible as it is, I I don't know if I would do that. And I understand where you're coming from. I get it. But now you get it. The wickedness today is no different than the wickedness of the dark ages. You think it's tough today? How about if you even owned the Bible you have in your lap, it was a capital offense. And they take your kids from you and feed them the pigs. Put your eyes out with hot branding irons. Cut your fingers off. Cut your tongue out. Put your head in a cage full of rats and poisonous snakes. You don't have to look forward to that. We think, oh, I don't know if I want to raise my kids in this. Oh, it was okay for them to raise them when their kids were caught over screaming for their mom and their daddy when they were thrown into a live vat of wild hungry pigs who ripped them apart and ate them while they're crying for mommy and daddy. And all that mommy and daddy has to do is just deny Jesus Christ and accept the Pope. And those little kids would be saved. And they didn't. You got problems, do you? Do you? Do you? I'll tell you what, my friend. The wickedness today is no different than the wickedness all down through history. The promises of that book for your family are as true today in our time as it was in their time. The problem is not the times that are more wicked. The times that God's people are more wicked. That's the problem. The key is the work of righteousness in our time. If there is absolutely any reason for a couple not to have children, this is my own personal statement, you can take it or leave it. But if there's any reason that's legitimate for a couple today not bringing children into the world, it's because you're going to be a lousy parent and lose your kids to the world and let them die and go to hell. That's my own personal opinion, publicly expressed. He says, I'll give you sure dwellings. Did he mean what he said or is he just saying it? He said, I'll give you sure dwellings if you do the work of righteousness as a family. You say, well, we didn't turn out that way. You better look and find out where the problem was then because it ain't in the verse. Fourth thing. Do I get all that down and I go to work for God, the work of righteousness? And then I hear from the preacher and I read and I hear from everybody else that God has a plan for my life. What an awesome deal. What an awesome responsibility. What an awesome privilege that that God, the creator of the universe, is interested in me, a mortal microbe idiot, to want to do something with me and yet to tell me and let me know for sure what he, was, what he wants me to do. I teach people all the time. I ain't kidding you. All my life, I've been young Christians all the time. Well, I just don't know what God wants me to do. Well, I feel sorry for you. Well, I, I just don't. What's God? I'm so confused. What God? I'm finding my search for God. I'm looking for this and I'm looking for that. You know what? I'll tell you something. You don't have to search for God. He'll find you. You just got to be open when he finds you. My Bible says in, in first, second Peter chapter 1, verse 10, you know what he tells me? He says, wherefore, the rather brethren give diligence to make your calling and election sure. 
For if you do these things, you shall never fall. He says, make your calling and election sure. See, your calling is a sure thing with God. Now, my election is my salvation, not in the sense of predestination or Calvinism, but in the sense of Ephesians chapter 1 and 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 verse 4. I am elected to be, I'm elected after I'm saved, not before I'm saved, not to be saved, but after I'm saved. But my calling is what God has called me to do after I'm saved. Two things keep you from falling in the passage. One, make sure your election's sure. Make sure you're saved. And two, make sure your calling's sure. You better be about the work of righteousness. Getting saved and then doing something with it. And I'm telling you, you know, I mean, so many of God's people, they worry and wonder, what does God want me to do? Young Christians all the time, good guys, good kids, good people. I don't know what God wants. They worry about it. Hey, the Bible says your calling is a sure thing. But you've got to be diligent in all you do with him, verse 10. What, does, what, 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 God, what God won't do for you and me, number one, is be more, what he wants you and me to do, number one, is he wants you and me to be more like him every day of our life. And but yet be diligent about it. Quit worrying about what God wants you to do and start being diligent and worrying about what God wants you to be. And you'll never fall because you'll be doing exactly what God called you to do. Let him reproduce himself in you first and then allow him to reproduce you in other people. And if you don't have that going for you, you ain't sure of anything. Fifth thing. God gave me my Bible. And I can take that book and trust it over everything in this world. And I do. And I make no apologies for it. I know there's churches today that don't believe the Bible anymore. There was a church in this town yesterday had a whole day seminar. A whole day seminar from 8 o'clock in the morning to 5 o'clock in the afternoon that went through all of the classes of explaining why the King James Bible is not the Word of God and why we don't believe it anymore. The only thing stupider than the people that went to hear that was the fact that they charged everybody $50 to hear it. God gave me my Bible. And I can take that book. It's the only thing I got that I trust in this planet over everything else. Because 2 Peter chapter 1 verse 19 tells me that we, also, we have also a more sure word of prophecy Whereunto you do well that you take heed as unto a light that shineth in a dark place until the day dawn and the day star rise in your hearts. I have a more sure word of prophecy. I'm sure of it more than anything else in life. Now that book, I'm not speaking for you now. I'm not presuming to. But that book is everything to me. It's the only thing in this world that I trust in 100%. It's my light that shineth in a dark place until the day dawn, the rapture, and the day star, Christ, arise in my heart. When I think of my Bible, I just think of five simple, basic truths about it and the history of man and how that thing works out. First thing I got in my Bible is the fact that God thought it. This book is the mind of Christ. It's God's mind to me. God's, the, the thought process of the eternal creator. God gave it to me so I could be sure of everything in this life. To me, he gave it. And when I, first thing I look about this book, I think in that aspect, God, it was in God's mind. He thought it. And then I think of the second aspect. God thought it, but it was the Holy Spirit that brought it. The Bible says, holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. It was inspired by God, yet it was preserved by God. And when I look at my Bible, I think it was the mind of God. God thought it, but yes, the Holy Spirit of God brought it down to man, and he brought it. But that wasn't enough. The third aspect about it is the fact that God may have thought it, Holy Spirit of God may have brought it, but then Christ bought it. Amen. He fulfilled the Old Testament, and he established the New Testament by his blood on the cross. He fulfilled it for me. He bought it with his own blood. 
So now when I look at my Bible, I got a book that God thought it. The Holy Spirit brought it. Christ bought it. But then the, here comes the downside of it. The devil fought it. Devil didn't want you and me to have that Bible. The devil wants pastors out there to hold seminars like that and to tell you that the King James Bible is not the absolute perfect word of God. You bet he does. Because the devil knows greater than anybody on this planet. The most dangerous thing on this planet is a common man with a common Bible. And boy, he wants to take that Bible out of your hand and give you an intellect, give you an education. He wants to give you the Greek and the Hebrew. He wants to give you all the great swelling words that don't mean anything. And in history, at every turn, at every crack, at every crevice, at every corner, at every turn in history of events, the devil was there to stop that book. He made it at one time in history a capital offense for you to have that Bible in your home. They would kill you under capital punishment. They were burned at the stake. They were tortured for their faith. They were, that, that Bible had been banned uh, in, in every country in Europe. They, they hated it. They wanted nothing to do with it. If I didn't know the King James Bible was the Word of God any other way, I would simply look down through history and find out the one that the whole world hated and the real Christians loved. That would answer it for me. He gave me a sure Bible. And oh, when I look at it, I look and I think, oh, God thought it. And yes, the Holy Spirit of God brought it. And yes, Christ bought it. And yes, the devil fought it. But bless God, in spite of it all, I got it. Amen. I got the book, brother. Bless God for it. And he ain't never going to give it up for anything. It's mine. Bless God, it's mine. I may lose my car, I may lose my house, I may lose all my earthly possessions, but brother, bless the Lord, you can never take my Bible. Amen. You can't steal what I got with Jesus Christ. Over there in Judges chapter 17 and 18, there's a man called Micah. And the Dan Danites come in. And Micah has a house of gods with all his carved images. And the Danites come in and they pack up all of his gods and take them away. And Micah whining around, going to everybody and saying, Oh my, they stole my gods. They stole my gods. What am I going to do? They stole my religion. You can't steal my religion. Amen. You say, Well, we'll burn your Bible. I got the Word of God hidden in my heart. Amen. Well, we'll burn your hymnal. Psalm 40 says, I got a song in my heart. Many shall hear it and see and praise the Lord. You say, Well, we'll take your candles and your beads and bust them all up. I don't need them anyhow. <laughs> Help yourself. You say, we'll build, burn down the church. I'm the church. Well, we'll sneak in and we'll kill your priest. Uh-uh, you can't get my priest. Amen. You can't get what I got. You know why? It's sure. It's sure. It's sure. Sixth thing. Boy, I like this one. He knew I'd be in a spiritual warfare. A warfare not of flesh and blood, but spiritual wickedness in high places. He knew I'd have to counter all the ologies and the theology of man. All the many devices that man will come up with to get around God. He knew every soldier needs a good supply of ammunition. And a good supply of food. And a good supply of water. So in Isaiah chapter 33 verse 16, he tells me this. He shall dwell on high. His place of defense shall be the munitions of rocks. Bread shall be given him. His water shall be sure. I see that thing. My ammunition is sure. Munitions. That's ammunition. The munition of rocks. An endless supply of ammunition for this soldier. With an endless supply of food. An endless supply. I can hold out forever. When David went out to fight Goliath over there, back there in the Old Testament, you remember the story? He goes out to fight, he takes a slingshot. And he goes down into that riverbed and he picks up not one stone, but five stones. And when he goes up and he kills Goliath, he kills him with a small stone, a small rock. That was his ammo. I've heard preachers get up there, don't know anything about the Bible, and they talk about the fact, well, David was a great warrior, and David was a great guy, but David had a little lack of faith, because if he really trusted God, uh, he would have taken just one stone. In fact, he wasn't sure about it, so he took five. You're an idiot. Second Samuel chapter 21, verse 18 says, Goliath had four brothers. 
If that guy wanted to make this a family fair, David was going to go five for five. You know why? His ammo sure. His ammo sure. Rocks out of the rock singular, otherwise the verses and the principles out of the word of God that I'll slay the Goliath of this old life with. And brother, I got a place of refuge as it says. It's this church. Your, this church is your refuge. This is where you stock up on the ammo. This is where you get your food and your water. This is where you get your munitions. And brother, it's a place of defense. And I'll tell you right now, you may not understand it. I get it. I got more ammo and rocks than the world got Goliath. As the world says, go in with your guns loaded. You bet I do. I'll tell you something else now that I'm thinking about it. When it comes to God's ammo, there ain't no duds. There's no misfires. There's no short rounds. Daniel chapter 2 verse 45. It says, For as much as thou sawest that the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, that it break in pieces the iron, the brass, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God hath made known to the king what shall come to pass hereafter. Here it comes. And the dream is certain, and the interpretation thereof is sure. Hey, that old Daniel get up there and found that old pagan king, and he laid that thing out, and he said, You know what? His interpretations are sure. There's no misfires with this book, brother. It's a sure thing. It's a sure thing. Seventh thing. I'll tell you something else that's sure. Bless God for it. Proverbs 11 verse 18 says, The wicked work of the deceitful work. Our text this morning, the last part of Proverbs 10, 9 says, But he that perverteth his way shall be known. You can always tell the workers of deceit by the way they do things. They don't use the Bible. They're not exact. But now look at verse 7. Uh, look at number 7. Chapter, Proverbs chapter 11, verse 18. The wicked work of the deceitful work, but to him that soweth righteousness shall be a sure reward. I got a sure foundation, I got a sure book, with a sure interpretation, I got a sure home, I got a sure of, of faith in Christ, and now at the end of my life, I got a sure reward. By sowing righteousness, planting the seed, in life we're only going to sow two things, ladies and gentlemen, and it'll be one or the other. You either sow righteousness, the word of God and truth, or you'll sow unrighteousness, gossip, discord, strife, and heresy. And with the righteous of the life comes the sure reward of the judgment seat of Christ. Wow. The eighth thing. The last thing. And now keep in mind that unsaved man has none of these. Most Christians, or all Christians, can't have them. Most of them won't. And I can't even begin to tell you what this one means to me. I can't speak for you. But that verse says, he that, walketh upright, uh, he that walketh uprightly walketh surely. The sure things of God gave me in an unsure world. Let's go down the list again so we're exact. Sure foundation, Isaiah 28. The sure mercies of God, Isaiah 55. The sure home for my family, Isaiah 32. My sure calling in the ministry, 2 Peter 1. My sure book, the Word of God, 2 Peter 1, 19. My surefire ammo with a surefire interpretation, Isaiah 33, 16, and Daniel 2, 45. My sure reward, Proverbs eleven eighteen. Then the eighth one, Hebrews chapter 6, verses 18 and 19. That by two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, <coughs> we might have a strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope set before us. Here it comes. Which hope? We have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which entereth in the, within the veil. Now I got a sure hope, a sure anchor for my soul that is both sure and steadfast. I'll tell you what the world doesn't have. They don't have hope. But bless God, I have a sure hope. The Bible says it's within the veil, in Christ, what he did for me on the cross. 
My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. Here's the anchor of my soul and my hope through life. When a ship lets down its anchor, it's not going anywhere. It's now steadfast. It's fixed. It's unmovable. And I can't speak for you, nor again would I presume to, but I will tell you this. 45 years ago, I dropped my anchor. I set my anchor in this book, brother, and I'm not going anywhere. You know what some of you need to do? You won't do it, but you need to. You know what you need to do? You need to drop anchor, brother. You need to sell it once in your heart, once in your life. As verse 19 says, steadfast, unmovable in the things of God. So many of God's people are all over the place. They're in today, they're out tomorrow. They're up, they're down, they're left, they're right. They struggle with every little thing. Something will turn them this way, turn them that way. And the bottom line is, a double-minded man is unstable in all their ways. They've never come to the place where they have dropped their anchor and have a sure hope. That's what makes the Christian life totally different from the world. We have a surety of God when we walk in righteousness. In the world, there's nothing for sure. There's no absolute in anything except one thing, and I'm going to give the ninth one, that is not to a Christian, but is to an unsaved person. There's only one thing an unsaved person has that is a sure thing. Romans chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Therefore thou art excusable, O man, whosoever thou art that judges, for wherein thou judgest another, thou condemnest thyself, for thou knowest that judges dost the same things. But we are sure that the judgment of God is according to truth against them which commit such things. The only thing an unsaved man can be sure of is the fact that he is a sure thing that someday he's going to stand before God and he's going to be judged. That's the only sure thing he's got in his life. Revelation chapter 20, verse 11. And I saw a great white throne, and him that sat on it, from whose face the heaven and earth fled away, and it was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God. And the books were open. And another book was open, was the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the book according to their works. Now that's how you're exact with Proverbs. That's searching out the scriptures. Two little verses that I could have just blown over, that if any other buddy would have been doing it in those cases, they'd have just made a couple of nice little off-the-cuff things, gave you a few little nuggets and moved on. You know now what it means to search the Scriptures. That book is a gold mine. Don't settle for a little gold dust when you can have the whole mine. Because that's the book that God's given you. Boy, there's more to Proverbs than just filled with the wisdom of God. And when... You search it out. You get all the understanding that God has too. The book of Proverbs is the single greatest book in all the Bible that tells you how God thinks. Now you look at those things and you can see what you're sure of as a Christian. What sets you apart from the world, really? Oh, I know the terminology. Well, I'm saved. I have Christ. I go to church. They don't. No, that's only true in a general sense. What sets you and me apart from every unsaved person and the world system is the eight things that you have that you are sure of that they don't have. Every head bowed and every eye closed.